Hey there, we're the Westlaw Pirates and welcome to the show. We're here to share our thoughts on Northwestern athletics and college sports with thoughts and analysis from the visceral to the statistical. We run our tailgate with the red pirate flag flying high above as we give no quarter, especially the fourth. I'm Sam Walter. I'm John Lacombe. And I'm Eric, less chance of stroke this week, Scouse Bell. <laughs> uh, yeah, we didn't go to overtime, uh, which is... I'm, I'm so happy. <laughs> um, yeah, that was a, a workmanlike victory over Purdue, 23-13, in a game that you know really didn't seem like it was in doubt at all, uh, but it was definitely a cold, cold endeavor. Um, and I know that there, there was some talk about, you know, from different sources after the game, people bemoaning the fact that, you know, people weren't showing up for the game, but it was, it was really, really cold. And it's an, you know, why are you scheduling night games in November? I do not understand. Exactly. And I think it's the kind of thing where, yes, if you want to speak in a general perspective about lack of attendance at Northwestern football games, fine, but let's not pick this game as an example. Yeah, like, no one who didn't have to be at this game was going to be at this game. It was brutal. <laughs> don't get don't make me fired up about Paul Banks' article yet. We'll, uh, we'll maybe save that for the <laughs> offseason. <laughs> uh, but in any case, um, you know, we went and got, got the job done against Purdue, uh, you know, you know, really stifled their offense in the first half completely. Uh, in the second half, kind of a different story. Uh, you know, we took a fourteen nothing lead going into halftime. Um, and interesting, you know, kind of looking at the that second touchdown, the the Skoranek pass from Thorson, kind of the drive that that came from. Um, you know, we got the ball back deep in our own territory with like a minute forty or something left, and this game as opposed to. Uh, the Iowa game, Fitz decided to open it up, and we got aggressive. We marched the ball down the field, and we scored a touchdown uh, to take a 14-point lead into into the half, which is was really really cool to see, and I I thought somewhat indicative of what we thought of Purdue's defense and the the game situation as it were. We were able to throw the ball on Purdue. We were not able to run the ball on Purdue. Uh, and, and we'll talk about that here in a sec. But, uh, so the passing game was working pretty well. You know, Thorson, al- almost 300 yards, uh, no interceptions. Uh, he was sacked once, um, you know, which compared to previous games is definitely an improvement. Um, so a, a good game from Thorson. Not, not a fantastic game. It wasn't his career best, but, uh, you know, the running game was completely eliminated, uh, not for lack of trying from our part. Uh, 25 handoffs to Justin Jackson, or direct snaps to Justin Jackson, as, as we'll discuss. Um, but yeah, I mean, offensively, it seemed to be working. It seemed in the second half, we kind of took our foot off the gas, at least, at least a little bit offensively. Uh, defensively, kind of let them move the ball. I mean, they, they got most of their yards in the second half, and all of their scoring in the second half, but it never really felt like we were in a situation where this was going to get out of control. If the 2006 handy fits reference chart for uh, offensive decision-making was essentially always punt on fourth down, never, uh, never go for it when, when you don't need to, um, he's evolved to a certain degree now. Now I think in 2017 we can we can comfortably say it is frequently go for it on fourth down, 
unless you're pretty deep in your own territory. Uh, at halftime, at home, with time on the clock, maybe try to get some points. At the end of the game, on the road, maybe try to get some points. At home, at the end of the game, play for overtime. Yeah, I mean... I guess, I mean, he wasn't really playing for overtime in this game. I mean, it was like, yes, Purdue put some things on down the stretch. I mean, I know you're speaking tongue-in-cheek, but... Well, no, I um, mean, more about the halftime, not about the overtime. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. I think there are a couple things on, on this game. Thorson was, like Sammy said, okay, but not great. But again, this was god-awful weather. So, like, you have to factor that in. I mean, it wasn't blowing like a monsoon out there, but it was really flipping cold. Not ideal weather to be throwing the ball around in. And that's why, I mean, again, Thorson's accuracy wasn't great. Sindelar's accuracy wasn't all that great, and his numbers weren't all that great until late in the third quarter and all the way through the fourth quarter when we kind of let him throw the ball all around the yard. Um, the, the running game, I mean, I think, you know, as we talked about it a little before the pod, and you know, you can go into it in more specifics, but Purdue has a great run defense, and I do really think that, and this is the thing, especially since we picked nits like crazy last week, um, <laughs> yeah, and, we did. And, deser- and, and deservedly so, but we were some negative Nancys last week, and I think it's important to understand in the context of everything that happened in this game, including our god-awful rushing attack, not just in terms of the stats, but in terms of the plays that we ran, that this game was almost never in doubt at any point. Um, It began as just a punt fest, starting off where, like, we weren't moving the ball, but Purdue wasn't moving the ball either. Then we got a touchdown. Then we got another touchdown to close the half. And even though Purdue got frisky down the stretch, we were never really in any real danger. And I think you have to factor that in when you look at the fact that, I mean, the play calling from a run perspective was so non-creative. We've talked ad nauseum about the fact that this team can't run interior at all uh, against any defense of any kind of quality. And we almost had no attempts to run outside in this game. There was no misdirection. There were none of those nifty sets that we saw in overtime that, you know, we talked about on the pod last week. Um, that our you know our line line coach may or may not have fed to McCall that week. That stuff did not show up again. There were almost no pulling plays, like literally a stunning amount. And then the cherry on the Sunday of ineptitude was Justin Jackson going into the shotgun formation as a wildcat quarterback three times in the game and just being fed into a wall for one yards or zero yards, which everyone could see was going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. So, I mean, it was so on the nose, everything that we've been talking about, that when you factor that in with the fact that there was never really a need for it, um, I almost kind of wonder if, you know, the coaches were already already like, you know, that we got Minnesota next week, let's not show them anything. Um, So, again, it was, we certainly didn't set the world on fire from an offensive perspective. But, again, you kind of felt like, we had more to give if the situation would have necessitated it, and it never did. So I can't complain. I think that's a really fair assessment. And like we talked about going into this game, right? This was going to be boring. It was going to be a lot of running, a lot of really good defense. We talked last week that Purdue's, Purdue's defense has been really good this year. 
um, and their running game has been decent, better than we ex- we expected. Knowing David Blau wasn't going to be there, they were going to be limited in terms of um, the dual threadiness from the QB, in terms of their explosiveness in the passing game. All this stuff came to fruition, and I'm not surprised at all the way things played out. The thing I am surprised about, I didn't, I haven't, been, I've not been good about looking at the advanced stats uh, this year as as the season has gone on. But I've been pulling up Bill Connolly's numbers as we've, as we've been chatting here. And Purdue has a top 20 rushing offense, or a top 25 rushing offense, I should say. We, I mean, I know Jack, Justin Jackson got held to 1.8 yards per carry. Purdue's entire team got held to 1.8 yards per carry. And that's a damn testament to our fine defense, who was outstanding oh. in this game. Richie oh, Warship yeah. is 260 pounds, and he got nothing against us. That is the type it, of player including- that is... Including on Inclu- like fourth and one, a couple oh, times, twice, 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 Stone. stuffed oh, him yeah. at the line on fourth and one. It was amazing. When was the last time we tackled a two hundred and sixty pound man on fourth and one? Oh, I mean, but again, it goes to something that we talked about in the Nebraska game too, which is you can have the talent at the skill positions, but if you don't have it in the trenches, it's nothing. And they did not have it. I mean, our defensive line. <clears throat> was just against the run dominant. And, and that was a big part of it. I think when Sindelar started chucking the ball all over the yard toward the end of the game, we maybe got a little bit nervous, but that really was late. I mean, his yards were backloaded like crazy. And, and, and early and on let, in the let's, game... Let's not forget, um, we played the second half without... Uh, the, 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 Hardage. Yeah, Hardage. We, we played the second half without Montre Hardage, who got ejected for uh, targeting. I hope you made giant air quotes while you were doing that. Nah, that was a legit call. I saw the reply. <laughs> I, he hit the dude. I, in, he hit the dude in the head with his shoulder. I mean, it's legit. It's it like, was, by definition. It, it was. It was. It was the kind of thing where, right? He if if your arms are down, that you're not going to get the benefit of the doubt. And yeah. I mean, he hit the, he yeah. hit the guy with the side of his head. But yeah, I mean, keep your hands up, Def- guys. Defenders, um, just make an attempt to wrap. Yeah. That was that's put your shoulder just... in the midsection and make an attempt to wrap. None of this like like hit a guy with your like you don't lead with your shoulder because if the dude moves down six inches, you're gonna hit him in the head and it's gonna be targeting. Um, so I mean like the, the fact that we shut down their running game so successfully, the fact that Sindelar just did not pose a real threat. I mean we gave him those yards as you guys were saying at the end of the game. Um, and John, you make a great point about the O line. Like Jeff Brome has done wonders with this team. I've been scared of them all year. I think on eight out of 10 podcasts, I've talked about how petrified I am of Purdue. And if you recall going into last season, we talked about the Purdue offensive line and Daryl Hazel's final year and how like three players in the two deep were walk-ons. You're right. They don't, they do not have the, the guys in the trenches, but still, I'm still really impressed at our defensive performance on the other side of the ball. Purdue's rushing defense is top 10. They're even better than us. So advanced stats were at you know somewhere in the thirteen to fifteen kind of range. Uh, Purdue is fifth in rushing S and P on defense, and I you know I wonder if we just said look we're gonna we're gonna run the ball just enough to keep them honest, and to win this game we're going to absolutely have to gain yards through the air, and that's fair enough. And um, here's you know one of the random thing that popped out as I look looking through these stats. Would you guys be surprised if I told you that we were the 86th ranked uh, team in rushing S and P this year? No, that, I don't. Mean, I don't think so. You mean like offensively or defensively? Offensively. Uh, that I 86 seems. 
I don't know. Eight, 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 I'd take 86 if you gave it to yeah, me. Yeah, I mean, it, se- it seems like we're somewhere in the in that bell curve there. Would you be surprised if I told you that last year we were 85th? Yeah. I mean, a little I, more, yeah. And how yeah, about in 2015 if I told you we were 99th? No, I I remember what the Iowa game was like Justin Jackson's freshman year. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that would have been his sophomore year, but yeah. still, like, the like point being, like, I think we've all had a lot of consternation about the running game this year, and rightly so. But oddly, when you like when you look at at some of these deeper stats on success rate and things of that of that nature, this run this run game has been remarkably consistent for three years well, in a row, and that's kind of well, stunning to me. I guess I mean consistent consistently. Well, consistently stunning. not great, right? But right, but like right. look at like. We talk about JJ. We talk about you know how much uh, how how he gets better throughout the game and how he wears defenses down and how just dramatically awesome he's been. And I guess some of those rushing numbers are influenced by sacks and you know Thorson lost a lot of yardage last year in freshman year. So I mean some of that is is moderated there. We we never you know Warren Long and um, uh. Solomon Vault have you know have been have been part of the backfield at times, but we've never had a number two guy quite like Jeremy Larkin. So I don't know. There's 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 some subtleties here as well, but I, I'm I'm really surprised to see that when you break it down statistically, that we're we're pretty much right where we've been for the last two years on the rushing front. And I think too. I mean, it's it's proven out this season that. It, we're we are not when it comes to rushing, we're not going to underperform against a bad defense. With the exception of Duke, which again, that's just you can fold that into this just slow starting Northwestern monster that has reared its head over the past couple of years. And Duke running that weird offense, and our line being really young, and us unnecessarily tinkering with the O line rotation. Flush all that stuff from earlier in the season, all the way through conference play. If a defense is not particularly great at stopping the run, we have great success running the ball against them. Guess what it's, team is ranked 106th against the run on defense? Right. Would so, that be I mean, that, Minnesota? It's the Gophers. Right. And <laughs> I think, honestly, I really do. It was the way, the level of non-creativity with yeah. which we ran the ball in this game it was so over the top as to be deliberate. It's like and, it's like we weren't trying, and maybe maybe we weren't. I don't know. Right. I, I mean, right. It, it really is true. I mean, I think if if you look at some of the stuff you've seen, expect to see the kind of play calling against the Gophers that you saw against Maryland and Nebraska on the ground. I mean, I just expect that one hundred percent to have. Yeah, expect to have success running the ball. I want to shout out Trent Goins too. Uh, on the defensive side yeah, of the, of the emerging. ball. Yeah, I mean, because we're talking about, you know, this youth movement. I mean, we can't have Tyler Lancaster and Jordan Thompson forever. You're going to have to see some other guys step up on the line. And, you know, we've talked ad nauseum about Sandup and Gastown. But Trent Goins, two sacks, career best game so far for him. He's showing out too. So uh, he's definitely going to be a guy who's going to be factoring into the D-line rotation for sure. Did you guys feel like this was Thompson's best game of the year? He really seemed like he was very disruptive this game. He he was super disruptive. Um, he was credited for one sack, but really, I would have given him another one on um, the one that Goins got credit for. Um, and if you've watched the video, 
Uh, he knew it was his best game of his career because he led a massive dance party. In the <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> it was the Jordan Thompson show in that locker room. So, uh, yeah, he, he definitely put a stamp on this one. I just feel like he got a lot of accolades last year, and we've not heard his name called very often this season. We know that Lancaster is getting a lot of the attention from, from offenses and, and certainly uh, Gaztown as well, but to see Thompson starting to emerge, to see um, Goins emerging as well. Like, that's like to have all four guys productive on the defensive line, when was the last time we had that? And then well, and then you think well, of then all add, the guys who aren't playing. Yeah, add that. Sam up into that. Like, so we got five guys, and then, yeah. It's, and then all the whole Ernest Brown, that whole mm-hmm, recruiting class, mm-hmm. and then the recruiting class behind that, all the guys who are high school seniors right now, you know, um, it's – it, we are deep at that one position, and as we are seeing, I mean, and then again, put three three more years of Patty Fisher behind that oh. defensive line, and it's hard not to feel good about the run D. So a, a defense built in Pat Fitzgerald's image, yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, and you know, the fact that we've been able to to stop the run as well as we have, and the D line has just been played playing awesome. Uh, that run defense is definitely going to come into factor as, as we look ahead um, if we're ready to shut the door on, on Purdue. Guess what Minnesota's really bad at? Throwing the ball. <laughs> yeah. And stopping the run. They make all their hay on the ground. I mean, I'm just looking at the box score of this, their 54-21 win over Nebraska last week. They ran for 409 yards on the ground um, and threw for 105. That score is a total misnomer. It is a total misnomer. The only thing that worries me about Minnesota is that Demery Croft is establishing himself as a runner. But here's the thing. He's not a dual-threat quarterback because he is no threat through the air. Um, now, that being said, I watched this team lose a game at home to Marquise Gray. So God only knows what's happening on Saturday. I'm excited to be there. Uh, for those who have been listening to us for a while, my dad and I get together for every Minnesota uh, Northwestern game where we can walk to the stadium from his house in uh, in the Twin Cities. So uh, it's a fun little rivalry, rivalry we've had. So I've been at this game for like six of the last seven years. And I think four of those have been Northwestern losses. So, um, But we should absolutely hammer this Minnesota team. They're a horrible matchup. Um, or we, we're a horrible matchup for them um, based on our run D and the fact that that's the only thing they do well. And it's easy to get caught up to in the numbers – the rushing numbers Minnesota put up against Nebraska, but again, Nebraska's got a really bad defense, and if you look at the numbers Minnesota's put up against better run defenses this season, they're good, but they're not anything spectacular. I mean, it's just, it's a totally different ball of wax, and and I think because Nebraska played us and Minnesota in back-to-back weeks, it's easy, I think, to want to get caught up in... um, the differential, the differential in the scores and be like, well, Minnesota really put it on them. Well, first of all, that game was at Minnesota. And second of all, if you listen to our pod, we spoke at great length about how maddening the Nebraska game was because it was clear we were a better team than them. Uh, we should have beaten Nebraska by more points. And I think Minnesota got their ground game going. But like Scuzz said, that's where their bread is buttered. And you take that away from them and you've got them. I'll, t- I'll tell you what else is pretty clear. I mean, I, I think this Nebraska team has lost their will to live, you know. Yeah, they, in, they, in, they've quit on this season. Yeah, in college football speak. I mean, like, like Riley is so clearly dead man walking. Um, 
I mean, that was true several weeks ago. And then after, a, a, you know, what was probably a heartbreaking loss against Northwestern at home, you know, that's – that's when the bottom drops out. We we talk a lot in the preseason, and John, you're you, you you're classic for this, right? You'd be like, guys, by the time we play this team in week eight, like they could have fired their coach and just be a total you know walking nightmare. That has happened in Nebraska. It just happened a week later than when they played us, and to have to go on the road to ask cold Minnesota and play you know this Minnesota team that just basically you know, tries to power run the ball down your throat every single play. I mean, they lost their will to play and they, and they got hammered for it. Right. And let's look at what happened when Minnesota went on the road to Purdue on the road to Iowa and on the road to Michigan, 17 points, 10 points, 10 points. And they lost all three of those games. The Purdue game is really telling. They lost to Purdue 31, 17, a Purdue team that we just essentially dominated without being, without an ounce of creativity on offense. Um, so I, I mean, in my heart of hearts, I think that uh, I don't think Fitz is a vengeful guy, but I think he probably wants to get PJ Fleck back for the open the season opener last season. <laughs> I mean, you know he's competitive, and you know that that's just like in his craw. Like QB fumbles at the goal line on what would have been a game winning touchdown, effectively. So uh, I think I think this team's going to be fired up for Minnesota, and I think it's a great matchup for the Cats on bo- on both sides of the ball. I do. I want to give one shout out to, um, in terms of guys who could potentially have a big game in this one, um, because he's had a couple really big plays. Is Bennett Skoranek? Um, couple that touch that touchdown pass uh, to Thorson to go up fourteen nothing was a mirror image of the one he caught that Justin Jackson threw. Um, albeit probably a little bit better thrown, but in both situations, you're talking about getting hit and having a defender on you at the time you catch the ball, and the guy's got sticky hands. He's an enormous framed guy, and if you throw it into those hands, they stick, and the ball isn't going to come out. And it's just that's a huge luxury. I mean, that's that's the kind of guy that every quarterback's looking for, and you can kind of easily start projecting and be like, yeah, I think you know for the rest of this season and then all of next season, Thorson is just going to be hunting for the that big guy with the awesome hands. John, you outlined, or, or I, I kind of outlined earlier, you know, that Northwestern's rushing offense has been really consistent the past three years. Um, but I think you just highlighted what is the biggest difference between this season and last season. And that's the success rate that our wide receivers have had and the catch rate that our wide receivers have had. So last year, Austin Carr was outstanding. You know, uh, he was over 60% success rate, meaning, you know, he catches the ball and gets the first down or gets enough yardage, yardage to be successful. Hardly anyone else was above 50% in the receiver core. And this year, Skoranek, Nabel, Wilson, Dickerson, Cam Green, Jeremy Larkin, Charlie Fesser, all over 50%. Our receiver core is performing far better. Um, a lot of that goes to Thorson as well, and his patience, his ability to read the field, his his avoidance of locking on to a, to a particular receiver. The other, the other factor, uh, last year Austin Carr had a 28% target rate, meaning 28% of the passes went to Austin Carr, which, I mean, like, <laughs> why wouldn't you, right? The dude was amazing. Uh, Activate him, Saints. Give me a break. Th- this year, Skoranek is tops, but it's only 17.7%. So, I mean, the Northwestern passing attack has just gotten demonstrably better this season in a lot of different ways. And I love that we're using our 6-4 receiver in the red zone and that we're we're throwing balls up where, where only he can catch it. I don't think I've ever seen Northwestern do that before. Like, we, we used we'd throw fades to um, – 
to Kyle Prater, which are just not not high success rate type Fade plays. Fade to Prater. And, and we'd, we'd, we'd throw him over the middle a lot, which was great. Like, we'd, we'd do the comeback route on the sidelines, which I liked a lot, but – what we're the way we're the ways in which we're using Skoranek are the ways in which a lot of other college football teams use big physical receivers, and it's spectacular to see. One thing I do want to mention, just kind of as peripheral to to the Minnesota game, th- this game is really really important for Minnesota. Uh, they play Wisconsin to close out the season, and they're five and five. So if they lose to us, they're not going to a bowl game. Uh, so. They will certainly have something to play for and have some real motivation in this game. Whether that makes any tangible difference, I don't know. Uh, so let's you know talk about kind of the rest of the Big Ten uh, last week, this week before we uh, touch on the the chaos in the in the top of the college football uh, standings. But uh, um, let's see. Last weekend, no big surprises in in the Big Ten, really. People um, would argue that the Ohio State Michigan State score was a surprise, and we I, sure, not. sure, <laughs> the, the margin maybe is a surprise, but the general the general takeaway that Michigan State outside of the rain, not so good. Yeah, when when, when we saw when we saw the forecast was was sunny, it was like nope, Michigan State's done. They they win great in the rain, but yeah, that, I mean. Michigan State still has a chance to finish this season nine and three, and that is a flipping miracle. So they've to get to where they've gotten this season. I mean, they've been playing with house money all year, and it, it finally you know came home to roost. Um, I I want to say in a peripheral note, everyone who was super excited when we were number twenty five in the college football playoff standings, <laughs> do not be surprised when we are not ranked in the college football playoff standings this week, despite winning a game. You think? Uh, yeah, I our I think the the big reason that that we were up there, I think, had to do oh, with the, the beating Iowa and Michigan, Michigan State, State and Iowa. All right, and they both of them getting their tails handed to. I'm not saying it's impossible. I think we're 27th in the AP and the coaches, but you know, I, if if we drop out, I think the the committee loved those two wins, and now they're going to love those two wins less. So we'll see. Yeah, as we record this on on Monday night, obviously uh, we don't know what the the committee will be doing tomorrow. Um, you know, we'll talk about that on Twitter, uh, as the week goes on, but, uh, one kind of one, one addendum to the big 10 in general, um, you know, aside from all of these games, Scuzz's prediction that only seven of the 14 big 10 teams are going to bowl is, is right on course. It is, it is a wasteland. And if you go through the bowl prediction standings, you just can see a, a big heap of games with Big Ten affiliations that are just plugging in whatever small conference school is closest. And I think that's probably the way it's going to shape out. I mean, Nebraska, Purdue, Minnesota, like it doesn't look good for those teams. Rutgers, Maryland, Indiana. I mean, I know some of these teams play each other, but yeah, it doesn't look good. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven teams bowl eligible currently. And I, I mean, it's you see a lot of teams that are so close, but then you look at the schedules and you're like, oh yeah. no, but they're not going to win those games. I think we've got like a like I think the Big Ten is like eleven bowl tie-ins, maybe only 10. 10, 10 or eleven. Yeah, I, the yeah. bet the best shot I would say is Minnesota if they beat us this weekend. Um, yeah, they would have to I, beat us I, though. 
and that's the best. Or, or the, beat Wisconsin the, the week after with yeah, sure, Wisconsin. Sure. Wisconsin yeah. things have literally happened. nothing to play for. Crazy they things liter- have happened. Yeah. Well, oh, Wisconsin? Wisconsin's got everything to play playoff. for. Playoff. They're not going to get Wisconsin. playoff. Oh, I don't know. I think now. Well, we're about to go there, right? But we can – their chances just got a whole lot yeah. better. Yeah. I, I, I made the comment that um, two weeks ago couldn't have gone worse for Wisconsin. This past week couldn't have gone better for Wisconsin, frankly. Yeah, I think the way I – I mean, again, we can get into it. But the way I'm looking at it now, I think the Big Ten winner is pretty clearly slotting in at this point, especially Ooh, if it's Wisconsin. I, mm, I totally Ohio disagree. State, though? Oh, I don't know. If you look at the rest of it's there, I, I see – well, so right now I think right Bama most likely, but probably not any other SEC team. I um, I think you have to look at it slightly differently. I think you have to look at it under the guise of – if you know, so if 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 Bama beats Auburn and Georgia, then yeah, I think you're right because the SEC will be eliminated uh, from a from having a second team, and then Miami and Clemson are going to play each other. That's right. You so know, one conceivably of an elimination, in, and then um, Oklahoma, and, and but who else? Yeah, exactly. So Wisconsin would be kind of next up, um, unless they lose to Ohio State, and then you know maybe does eight and two or does does. T- uh, eleven and two Ohio State go over a uh, eleven and two Georgia. Eh, I don't know. We'll That's or true. eleven you and two Notre Dame. Yeah, you get into some weird two loss stuff there. Or and let me and let me just say too. Or thirteen and O UCF. I just feel like someone <laughs> needs to go to bat for this team that might get leapfrogged by two loss teams. Oh boy. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna avoid I'm gonna just swerve around that one and uh, <laughs> mention that the 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 key thing is if Auburn beats Alabama and then you've got an eleven and one Alabama sitting there, assuming in a tight game, and I don't know about you, but like eleven and one Alabama, I'm taking them every day over twelve and one Wisconsin. I'm probably taking them every day oh. over thirteen and zero Wisconsin. Oh, for sure. I, people would I lose totally their minds agree. about it, but I like the 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 thing. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. The college football play the committee playoff committee is in place to do exactly this: to leapfrog a team that has lost above an undefeated team because they're a better team, and it makes sense. Like that. That's why the committee and exists. If, and if Georgia beats Alabama in the SEC championship game, they're both getting in. Yeah, same like same deal. Yep, exactly. Right. right. Yeah, no, I was just, I was just looking. I've just been trying to map a path to UCF getting in. <laughs> and the Notre Cardi- Dame loses to Stanford. I just, I, just, uh, like, I, I just, right. I was looking at multiple things and being like, how many two lost teams do you put in before you finally give credit to the team that's undefeated? I don't know. I'm not saying it'll happen, but like I texted you guys, I do think. UCF at the end of the day is going to be within five spots of the playoff, and that'll just be enough for a lot of people to get really annoyed. But it's it's either way. Scott Frost makes five million dollars a year starting next year, regardless of the situation. So, you know, I think he's 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 going to be fine either way. So it's really too bad that they didn't play anyone this year. Because so like last season, you had the Houston squad that played Oklahoma early and beat them, right? And if they had gone on a run. And had been thirteen and zero with a win over Oklahoma. Like they would have gotten in 
had they gone undefeated because the hype was there at the beginning of the season. They were ranked high enough, and they had that signature win. UCF didn't play anyone this year, and I, I don't know what their schedule is next year. Like If they could get a marquee game on the schedule next year, they'd probably go in with enough hype and enough um, eyeballs to make a run at it. But like that's how hard it is for one of these, these uh, non-Big 5 teams to go. They have to string two years in a row together, hope their coach doesn't get poached, hope nobody critical graduates or gets, gets injured, and effectively go undefeated two seasons in a row. I So... Only because we're here, and this is going to seem like a slight departure, because you you brought this up and got me thinking about it. I have to read everybody. So Army is eight and two right now. <laughs> I have to read Army's schedule. Army's schedule would be a so so FCS schedule. <laughs> they have wins over Fordham, Buffalo. UTEP, Rice, Eastern Michigan, Temple, Air Force, and Duke. Duke being by far their best win. Uh, Air, Air Force, Force is pretty good. They shut Air out Force Air Force is, too, which is Air Force is all right. But again, this is a team that is eight and two and lost twenty one seventeen to Temple. Uh, they've played one good team this year, Ohio State. It was thirty eight to seven, and it was not rem- and remotely close. And they still have North Texas. So this is a team that had Fordham, Buffalo, Tulane, UTEP, Rice, Eastern Michigan, Temple, and North Texas on their schedule. That's an FBS football team. I just, I mean, good, none of us have a problem with seeing Army win football games. It's just, just an incredible schedule. Uh, we sh- we should all take we should schedule our non conference just that way just army just drowning in creamy frosting maybe maybe we could play them in the Music City Bowl now they've already accepted a bid to the armed for- armed forces oh that's the right armed, there's all the those military bowls that they go to yeah yeah and, fair enough and and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention army best record among the FBS independents right now <laughs> it's cold cold ice ice cold well I mean. <laughs> Notre Dame's eight and two, so they're all tied. Army, Army, right? If Army played Notre Dame's schedule, they might not have a win. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking around the the schedule for don't, this upcoming weekend. Don't do it. You're going to get yeah. depressed. Well, don't I, do it. I was just going to leave it there. I mean, there is I mean, game day is going to Madison. Uh, for Michigan, Wisconsin, Michigan now unranked uh, as of last week. Um, we should talk about that game, but carry yeah. on. No, I, um, I mean, Rutgers, Indiana, I, I, they're both you know trying to scrape cl- uh, one game closer to a bowl bid. Um, Illinois, Ohio State, oof. <laughs> well, have you guys seen the line yet? Yes. What is it? G- guess the line. Uh, Illinois at Ohio State. Oh, please, Ohio State. Please beat this line. 45. That's actually high. It's 40 and a half. 40 and a half. Please win by 50, Ohio State. Please, I beg of you. I do want to talk about that uh, Michigan-Wisconsin game. Yeah. Not Not so much for what it means for Wisconsin, because I'm sorry, like everyone, if you've been watching Wisconsin this year, Wisconsin is a uh, very mediocre offensive football team with a defense that only Alabama 
can make a legitimate argument to be anywhere near as good. Wisconsin's defense is obscene. They're so flipping good that they can win games week after week for Wisconsin. They have not the... played the type of offenses that Alabama's had. I mean, hey, I mean, let's see it. But I mean, like, you're talking about a team playing. I mean, I mean, yes, that's true. But come on, I mean, that defense is just unbelievable, and they they don't have the athletes that was that um, Alabama has. But on the other hand, Jim Leonard. This, I mean, this guy's a genius. Like, he's going to be a head coach. It's just a question of when. And they are aggressive. They, I mean, they're just beautiful, a, a beauty, a joy to watch on defense. But anyway, I, I digress. My point is, I just don't see Michigan winning this game. And to me, the real issue is Michigan had that horrible stretch where they lost to Michigan State, they barely beat Indiana, and then they got smoked by Penn State. And the Boo Birds haven't really gone away. It's just that Michigan got to play Rutgers, Minnesota, and Maryland for three weeks. Michigan's staring at Wisconsin and Ohio State right now, meaning there's a real possibility they finish 8-4, and four, and were they to lose their bowl game, 8-5, and five, and that is... Not a good finish, and that's not what the Michigan fans are looking at. And and you can really see, I mean, if Michigan takes it on the chin two weeks in a row here, the bloom is well off the Harbaugh Rose. And we've kind of talked about this, but, you know, he may hear Indianapolis calling or whatever else. But, I mean, I think for me it's it's much more interesting from a a Michigan department. And, and again, if Michigan somehow finds it and wins their last two games – it totally changes the narrative, but I mean, I think that's kind of how much pressure he's on these next two weeks. So, so a couple thoughts. First off, um, I, I pulled up the advanced stats here. Wisconsin is actually ranked number one in S and P plus defense. Um, no kidding. I mean, wow. and 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 I test. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't. Yeah. I can't stress I, that enough. Again, I don't. I mean, Utah State, Florida Atlantic, early Florida Atlantic. I'll add BYU, Northwestern, Nebraska, Purdue, Maryland, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa. I know. Well, I, I, actually, I know. actually, let me let me stop you there. Florida State without their quarterback, uh, Fresno State, Colorado State, Vanderbilt, Ole Miss, Texas A and M, Arkansas, Tennessee, LSU, yeah, Mississippi I guess, State. I know. I guess we we forget how bad the SEC sucks. I'll, this I'll year. take Mississippi and they, State. And Alabama and, hasn't played. I'll take the Mississippi State and A and M offenses over any of the ones Wisconsin has played. Hey, I feel like we could go head to head with Mississippi State. I feel like we could play with them, with, and we just might. The, so, the like, human, the human out. bowling ball, Nick Fitz, Nick Fitzgerald. Um, yeah. Well, I, I mean, so you know, you have a fair point. Alabama has not been um, tested uh, per se either. They, they, they're going to get it in two weeks. But so here's the and, other thing and I'll say: Mississippi it, State gave them all they could handle last week. Yeah, true on the road. True, true. They got to go to Auburn. Um, but so here's the thing about Michigan. So a Michigan's defense is ranked sixth overall in S and P plus. So, uh, despite the fact that they've had a couple tough games, you know, the, the, the Penn state game, uh, et cetera, like their, their defense is, is right there and is, is going to, um, I mean, Alex Hornibrook, my God, uh, the other inner, the other thing about Michigan that's important is one of the biggest criticisms, criticisms that has been levied on Harbaugh early in the season is that he didn't move away from John O'Corn fast enough. Um, Wilton Spate was not good. He was not great last year either. He got injured. He went to John O'Corn. John O'Corn sucked for what? Four weeks, five weeks. They pulled him halfway through the Rutgers game 
and this kid Peters has looked spectacular. Uh, he's not, you know, he's not looked like um, DeAndre Francois or uh, Deshaun Watson, but he's been really, really good. And and Michigan accordingly has responded. Now, granted, the the, the schedule's been weak: Rutgers, Minnesota, and and on the road against Maryland, but. Um, they've performed well. I think they've gotten their legs underneath them, and I think they'll pose a much a much stiffer test to Wisconsin than anybody else has to date, outside of maybe us. I, it, I mean, the game is in Madison, so it's hard it's hard to pick well, anything but I, the Badgers. But I, I mean, I just like this: the Wolverines scored ten points against Michigan State, thirteen. But that was that was in a monsoon State. with with a half as good quarterback as they have now. Like, like they've dramatically upgraded the quarterback quarterback position, which has been their biggest problem for for the entire Harbaugh era. For three, they started Jake Rudock for God's sake. Hey, you could talk me into this being a low scoring game for sure. Like I, you know, um, but I just, I, I don't know. I, it's just so hard for me to see Michigan moving the ball. I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe I mean he is. Maybe it is. But I mean, it's you know Michigan, Maryland. Now it's the Badgers on the road at Camp Randall. We'll see. Um, just to round out the rest of the Big Ten schedule, uh, Purdue at Iowa, Maryland at Michigan State, and Nebraska at Penn State. I see some ugly, ugly games going on there. And Oh, my God, Nebraska at Penn State. <laughs> Oof, duh. Saquon, Saquon Barkley might uh, reinvigorate his Heisman hopes single-handedly. All, he might run for 400 yards. yards by himself. He'll rush for all of the yards, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting. You mentioned that Rutgers-Indiana game early on, Sam. Um so next next week, Rutgers has Michigan State, and Indiana is at Purdue, and that's what's going to prevent whoever wins this game from getting yeah, to a bowl. Fair. Pur- right. Purdue has to take on Iowa this week, so next year or next week, if they beat Indiana, like they're still not going bowling. Um, it's it's brutal brutal for uh, for the bottom half of the Big Ten right now. Luckily, uh, there might be a lot of five and seven teams. You know, with APR, we'll see. That's kind of the hopes for the bottom half of the conference at this stage. And, and that's just it. The rest, if the rest of college football can't fill the spots, I mean, you're not getting five and sevens until every six and six is going bowling. If you think Iowa and Minnesota are getting in on APR, I got news for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Iowa's already got six wins; they're already in. Yeah, I was in. Yeah, you're you're right about Minnesota. I think I think I think their APR probably took a real big hit last year. Yeah. Um, and you know, looking around the the rest of the country, don't ugh. don't do it. No, it, it's bad. There's like this is the this is the week that yeah. I just I'm looking at the SEC schedule, and this is the week that every big SEC team is scheduled their like D two cupcake. I mean, not even F F C F yeah, not even FCS cupcake. I mean, these are terrible, terrible games. I mean, how many people are are getting out of bed to watch uh, Alabama just wax the floor with Mercer? About eighty five thousand people in the state of Alabama. Okay, aside from that, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm with you. I, Clemson is taking a page out of the SEC playbook. They're playing the Citadel this weekend. Um, but who, who's going to who is the Citadel going to have anyone in it, or are they just going to play this empty building? There's there's one team, Sam, one team from the SEC, well, two teams from the SEC with the audacity to play each other this week. And I'm 
I'm far more intrigued in this game because it will feature the the much maligned Brady Hoke. And I'm very curious <laughs> as to whether or not he will wear a headset as the interim head coach at the University of Tennessee hosting the man himself at Ogeron and LSU. It's like it's like interim Palooza. Oh my god, it's a, <laughs> this is a dream. This is a dream matchup. Yeah, um Bush Jones get getting heave ho at Tennessee. I mean, and like we knew this was coming, but when they got waxed at Missouri, uh you know, Mizzou, Mizzou put up a half a half century on them. Mizzou's and, terrible this year. Yeah. They're they're not good. And they just rolled over. I mean, Tennessee that that team is quit. I think the you know, Missouri's the only... two and four in conference. I mean, they're they're horrible. Well, their their other win was over a Florida team that has also quit on the season. Uh, but you know, I heard the the reason that they hadn't fired uh, Butch earlier was to try and keep the recruiting together. But with the team quitting and they they're starting to lose top notch recruits. There's literally no reason to keep Mon anymore. Get him out of there. Start start searching for the next. Uh, I they next may have up. they may have miscalculated because um, they so they lost one big recruit last week and there was another one that was kind of waffling, and then they fired Butch and they lost that guy and three others in quick succession, and I I, I compare how their athletic director and Butch himself. Have, have operated compared to Mike Riley in Nebraska because we've known for what three weeks now that Mike Riley was probably getting canned at Nebraska. Um, they're gonna they're gonna likely end up the season four and eight. I mean my goodness uh, but the the at the, the athletic director today at Nebraska came out and said like look I, I don't have a coach to hire tomorrow. Mike Riley has earned the right to finish the season. And we'll evaluate at that stage. Like, just like a very open and honest and frank response, I thought. Whereas the Tennessee AD two weeks ago tried to say, I see progress. <laughs> I can't even say it with a straight face. <laughs> and Butch Jones is making up shit on, on the order. Of, I mean, not quite the order of Jim McElwain, but um, pretty close to it. You know, talking about the support that he has and this, that, and the other thing and champions of life and all the other sort of nonsense that he's trying to peddle at Tennessee. And I just like those two elements couldn't be more different. And I think because of how Nebraska's handling it, I think the fan base is giving I mean, they're pissed, right? But I think they're giving they're giving Nebraska a little bit of leeway. And I've seen a couple people, Big Red Cobcast tweeted this uh, a couple days ago. Like, I would rather have Mike Riley any day of the week than Bo Pelini. And and I think that athletic department, for whatever kind of turmoil they're in, They've approached this in a much healthier, transparent, and effective way, keeping their fan base from, you know, foaming at the mouth, unlike Tennessee that's bungled this thing from pretty much the end of last season. And and now had you had to fire Butch early, probably paid out way more, you know, now than they would have at the end of the season, lost their opportunity with some of these recruits because they ain't hiring anyone between now and the end of the season. And, and, and let's be honest, they're probably fifth or sixth on the pecking order uh, come the coaching carousel at the end of the year too. So I think they're in, in deep caca. Yeah. And, and that's going to be real interesting. You know, Scott Frost is kind of the top, uh, you know, he's the Tom Herman this year, right? I mean, is, is that, and I think, 
I think that's part of the reason that Nebraska's having a smoother thing is Nebraska fans, reasonably or not, are convinced Scott Frost is going to be their next head coach, which he might be. Yeah, that's a fair uh, point. That's a really fair point. Like, they think there's a, a, a pot of gold at the end of this rainbow. I would not be surprised at all if, if Frost did not want to go back to Nebraska at this point. How, how do you I, not if take it's the not there, job? How do you yeah, not Yeah, that's it? the thing. It's it's Florida. It's Florida. And he, I mean, that's right where he is right now. I mean, he's right in their backyard. Yeah, I mean, he's, rec- it's he's one- recruited there for a, a little while now. He's got relationships. You, Nebraska's going to have to pay. We'll see what they're willing you, to you, what they're willing to do. You get to recruit Florida, and they're going to pay you a gajillion dollars. And your only competition is Georgia. Yeah. No, I. It's it's true. Well, and then like you, I, like you look at Tennessee. So here here are the SEC schools that presumably will be looking for a coach this offseason. Florida, Missouri, Tennessee, Texas A&M, Ole Miss, Arkansas, maybe Vanderbilt. I'd say Tennessee's probably the second or third best job amongst them. You can debate between Tennessee and Ole Miss. Uh, I, I, mean, I mean, I'm taking A&M Florida, and Florida A&M over that, else. right? Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's talk that, you know, Jimbo Fisher could could jump ship from Florida State, presumably to go somewhere like A and M or something. I guess he's from Texas, maybe. I don't know. Some there's a there's a website that's got like a doomsday scenario of of coaching carousel that's pretty entertaining. Um, but you know, like Florida State opens up, or uh, you know, we we think UCLA is going to be open. Obviously, Nebraska's open. Um, we think that there's a potential for a couple Big Ten jobs to open up. Like it's just. You know, if, if if Brian Kelly or James Franklin or Jim Harbaugh jump to the NFL, um, it, I mean, there's there's potential for Tennessee to drop down to like the double digits in the pecking order of of the coaching search. And I just I don't think they have a plan because two weeks ago their AD said he saw progress. Yeah, no, I want to I want to shift gears here um, from programs that are a mess to a pro to. Unlike these once proud programs that are that are just in dark situations right now, a once proud program that has found its way back. And yes, there are no marquee matchups, but that doesn't mean that at at eleven a.m. Central Saturday you can get up. You can get up, and if you're not at our game, watch the funnest team in the country play football, and that is the Miami Hurricanes. <laughs> <laughs> they. Yeah. Do yourself a favor and watch this team play. They're, they have found their way. I think this was a team that was winning without kind of kind of finding its identity early on in the season and winning close games. And a lot of us kind of thought, oh, this team, the minute they face adversity, they're going down. And no, instead, they've gotten much better as the season's gone on and they've kind of kind of fit into their jerseys now. And they, the Notre Dame game, it wasn't just that they were the better team on the field, and it wasn't just that their defense was playing unbelievably physical football um, and fast football. The swag is so there at Miami right now. And the turnover chain is, I joked with you guys, if you haven't had a chance to see the turnover chain, do yourself a favor and watch some highlights. It is the gaudiest, most swagalicious. It is such a Miami thing. That it's preposterous that they didn't think of it until this season. It really, but it really is preposterous. It's, I mean, it, it is just this massive gaudy piece. The thing's probably worth fifty thousand um, dollars, and it's not an NC violation because it's not like any coach is paying for it. It's like you know, waterfall in the locker room or giant gold chain. Take your pick, I guess. <laughs> but 
Um, but it's, I mean, it's just a team that was just having so much fun. They've really got strong fan support in their stadium right now, which is not something that Miami has always had historically. Um, and they're, I mean, this team is, is rolling. And if I'm Clemson, I am really nervous. Now, on the other hand, Miami's looking at a game with giant letdown potential, but more realistically, I think you're going to watch a team that is, you know, they're going to put a hurting on Virginia, but do yourselves a favor because the turnover chain is hilarious and awesome. And uh, that is just a team that's having fun playing football right now. Now I I was, I was, I was flipping channels quite a bit, uh, you know, that night because you know our game was on as well um how long does the player wear the turnover chain after he uh, gets the turnover i mean i think until he has to go back on the field okay (laughs) yeah that's about how long it is because i wondered that too because there was a period of time where my where miami was getting turnovers so fast in the second quarter that i was like does one guy have to take the chain off and give it to another guy but like yeah i think when they go back onto the field they they take it off again I mean, but, uh, so John, I don't think it's, I mean, unless it's made out of bitcoins, I don't think it's 50 grand, <laughs> but, um, I thought you were going to bring up the, the thing you texted us, which was that, you know, we all know oh, yeah. that at this stage, Baker Mayfield's going to win the Heisman, but the turnover chain is like probably <laughs> the real winner. That's right. When you think back to this season, you're going to remember the turnover chain. I guarantee. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right. And I think especially since, you know, Miami's got some real high high profile football ahead of them. I think, you know, they're looking at a date with Clemson for a spot in the college football playoff and uh you will see some turnover chain in that game for sure. I'm pretty sure that we joked in December of twenty sixteen like watch Mark Richt come to Miami and make the playoff while Georgia doesn't. Where I mean that very well might happen. They might even play each other. Like my good, like Mark Mark Rick looks like looks like he's having so much fun and is so happy. Um, oh yeah, he's like the stress level at Miami compared to to Georgia has to be astronomically lower. And on top of it, his team is just playing gangbusters. It's also worth ma- mentioning that uh, Rozier Rozier Rozier, uh, the QB for Miami, is real fun to watch and has some um, some mad wheels. I, I feel like, and this just kind of popped in my head. Um, you know, at Georgia, when things go bad, the the fans come down on you hard. But I feel like Miami, they just and, and go Miami, away. they're just like, oh, well, go to the South Beach, whatever. <laughs> like when when Miami's doing well, everyone comes out and is excited. And when they suck, it's like, eh, whatever. Oh look, the Heat are playing. Oh look, a club. Oh look, South Beach. Yeah, Dolphins. Um, we should talk about basketball. Yeah, we really should. Um, and. Uh, yeah, uh, Northwestern basketball, uh, underway, uh, two games in, two and oh, uh, two games played, uh, in a vacant Allstate arena. Um, I have yet to see, like, official numbers for, uh, attendance, but, you know, I, it can't be great. Um, but, uh, yeah, opening night beats Loyola, Maryland, 79-75. Uh, tonight, uh, they beat St. Peter's, uh, 75 to 66. Um, I, I think that the biggest takeaway from, from both of these games, one, is the cats are turning the ball over a lot. Uh, 17 turnovers against the Peacocks tonight, uh, 15 against Loyola. And that, that's just not what 
we've seen out of out of this team in the past. You know, they, they generally it's done kind, a lot better of holding onto the ball. It's kind of what we saw at the beginning of last year. Yeah, I mean, McIntosh that's true. struggled a lot with turnovers at the beginning of last year, and when you know when Big Ten play came around, he really had to make an effort to change. Now, so, some of that might have been. You know, he was trying to do too much offensively, and as as Big Ten came into play, like Scotty Lindsay came back from mono, and uh, Vic Law was starting to hit his stride a little bit more. Pardon was more developed, et cetera, et cetera. But um, we saw that was a problem at the beginning of last season. I think uh, the the other big thing to look at is that Aaron Falzon has not dressed yet for a game, and we've effectively replaced Sanjay Lumpkin and his defense with Gavin Skelly. And that's, I mean, it's a bit of a drop off, uh, and and you don't get the offensive, um, you know, bang on the other side of the uh, of the court like you would with Falzon. So, I, you know, I think defense was a big struggle in that first game. The Cats looked a lot better against St. Peter's uh, in that and on that front, they seemed to make more of a statement. But um, that's something certainly to watch over the next couple of weeks. I also mentioned Sammy official attendance tonight five thousand one hundred and one. Yeah, and which at Welsh Ryan is fine. At an eighteen thousand seat Allstate Arena, is twenty eight percent capacity. It's just a different feel. Yeah, now you've got Creighton coming into town, who's again, you know, a different animal. Now they've played Yale and Alcorn State, but Creighton's scoring over a hundred points a game right now. So uh, sloppy play is not going to to do it against this team. I mean, Creighton's a legit squad for sure. And I think, you know, it's it's been a little rocky to start. I think, obviously, you've got to think that our team is, you know, they, they know. They know what's expected of them. They, you know, they know the situation they're in. They know Northwestern, no Northwestern team's ever been in it before, right? And to top it all off, they're in that really weird environment that they're still kind of getting used to at home. So, um, you know, I'm not exactly surprised that it's been a sluggish start, but like you said, I mean, the injuries are a little worrisome and I think we're really going to find out where we are when Creighton comes in. Yeah. All five starters got double digits today. And you know, just to, to kind of look on the plus side, um, again, you know, tonight we shot 48% from the floor, 34 rebounds to, uh, St. Peter's 16. Um, yeah, it's really hard to kind of judge you know is this team going to be a good rebounding team is this team going to be a good uh field goal percentage team you know against Loyola Maryland and St. Pete's yeah it's, it's just it's too it's too early to take any huge ramifications away from that I mean I think like I, I was looking at Kim Palm earlier you know we I think we were what 20th to start the year we dropped down eight spots after the the opening game to Maryland we'll probably move back up a couple after this win but um yeah, that Creighton game, that's going to be the bellwether on uh, on how this team looks. Yeah, so that, that game is on uh, on Wednesday, 7 o'clock, Big Ten Network. Uh, so that, that'll, be, that'll, that'll be something to watch. Um, definitely looking forward to that. Um, anything else we need to mention before we get out of here? Uh, I know women's soccer advanced out of the first round in the NCAA tournament. Um. Now they travel out to LA to play UCLA, so that's a it's one to keep an eye on. I think it's it's late at night on Friday night out on the West Coast. So, um, good good luck to the ladies. They're facing a real juggernaut. We'll see what we what they can do. 
I think the only other thing to mention is all three of us are going to be in person at Ryan Field on Saturday. Yeah, absolutely. Northwestern for the first time. It'll be my first game of the year. I'm really psyched. Yeah, looking forward. Just remember, great we, to see you. Just remember, we charge more for the autographed group photos. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, th- three beers instead of two or one. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. But that being said, like definitely come by the tailgate on Saturday. Say hi. Um, hang out. Uh, we'll we'll be we'll be there all game. Might be hanging out a little bit afterwards too, depending on the weather. But um, yeah, I'm thrilled. This will be my. Like I said, first game of the year, so let's do it up right. Early indications are it's going to be at least sunny. Uh, if not, it'll be chilly but not cold, not like uh, last weekend's game. But, you know, like I say, it is Monday. That is for Saturday. It's uh, a ways to go weather changes. Um, so with that, we'll leave it there for this week and continue our search for the Swoley Grail. So actually, um, in lieu of final thoughts this week, I, I wanted to, I had a really interesting, uh, moment when I was watching the, uh, just a little bit of the Iowa State, Oklahoma, uh, state game, uh, last weekend. And it, for whatever reason, just kind of watching Iowa State, you know, playing interestingly, it, it kind of brought me back to when I was a kid. I, and thinking about the first ever college football game I ever went to. Um, and, uh, I, I, I told, briefly told the story on Twitter. I, I want to tell it a little bit more today. Uh, but I, I'd, lo- I'd love to kind of get your guys's first ever college or earliest college football memories, uh, for, for this week's, uh, final thoughts. Well, I'll jump in first. Um, as, as everybody knows, I was a huge band nerd, both in high school and college. And, I didn't really, I never really got into football until late in my high school years anyway. Um, for whatever reason, it just wasn't on the radar, maybe because I lived in, in hockey country, but I went to my senior year. I, I went on a recruiting visit or not a recruiting visit. What am I talking about? Uh, Just a college visit to Stanford in the fall. And I had a friend who was a year older who, who was out there who had been in the band with us, uh, in high school. And she was in the, the Stanford band, the infamous Stanford band. And, um, my buddy Sully and I, uh, joined up with the band for the, for the game. Like they gave us the little red vests and showed us how they sneak vodka into the stadium. And, uh, you know, I think we went to one practice with them and then we, uh, on Friday and then we went to the, you know, spent the game with them on Saturday. We got to go to the band shack, which was this just like dilapidated structure with a lot of stolen signage and drug paraphernalia. And, um, I'll be honest, I was totally hooked. Uh, this also happened to be, they were playing Arizona state. I think it was two weeks after they had hosted Notre Dame and it was an infamous halftime show that the band had done at Notre Dame. And they they had been banned from traveling to Notre Dame long, long before, uh, this game. But at this particular game, I think they had, uh, their drum major dressed up as like a Cardinal or a Bishop and was doing offensive things. Um, they spelled out uh, potato and then changed it to no tato on the field. So, I mean, they basically made fun of the Irish potato famine. Um, I think they they, <laughs> they drew wow. a Catholic fish, uh, or they made it like, like a Catholic fish 
set and then gave it feet like the Darwin fish. I mean, it was, wow. was kind of epic. And because everyone was really mad at them from the Notre Dame performance, whereupon they're basically told, like, you can't play at any Notre Dame games for the next, like, 13 years, that that game against Arizona State, it was all flowers. So every set that they made was, like, a different flower, and their announcer, who often said, like, really horrible things over the PA... Um, talked about like the flowers like there was the cactus flower and some other flower like this is the way they were trying to appease people two weeks after this <laughs> epic Notre Dame thing so I mean like needless to say I was totally hooked I was all I was I was in on college football I was in on college marching band and uh it was uh it's been all downhill from there <laughs> um for my final thought I'll I'll take it back in time a little bit farther I grew up right next to Dartmouth so the high school that is in the town where Dartmouth is located, Hanover, was my rival high school. And the uh, the high school football field that we played at, at our hated rival my senior year, quite successfully, I might add, is literally across the street from Dartmouth's football field. So I went to a fair amount of Dartmouth football games when I was in middle school and high school. And those are some real glory days uh, within the Ivy League for Dartmouth, which is traditionally a good Ivy League team, but certainly not a power on the order of Harvard and Yale. So um, Jay Fiedler, who is definitely the greatest quarterback Dartmouth's ever had and had a, a little run with the Miami Dolphins uh, while I was in high school and, and I guess in, in, into uh, when we were in college, rewrote all the Dartmouth passing records while I was in, while I was in middle school, specifically eighth grade. And what was really cool about going to Dartmouth football games was, I mean, again, it's FCS football, and I don't know how it is today, but <clears throat> the end of the end zone, the south-facing end zone of Dartmouth Stadium was literally just a yellow rope. Like, you could just walk up, you could even grab onto the rope and hold on, and that was literally the end of the end zone. Like, you could just reach your foot forward and put it in the back of the end zone if you wanted to. And, <clears throat> and there was one game, so... Uh, Dartmouth, I believe, either won the Ivy League or finished second, but I think they, they tied for the championship, Jay Fiedler's senior year. And one of the final games that he played was a huge comeback where I think they were down maybe like 28-10 to something to Cornell on the, in the, uh, at halftime and, and mounted a huge comeback in the fourth quarter. And the go-ahead touchdown was about a 50-yard bomb with maybe, I don't know, two, three minutes left in the game where their wide receiver, Andre Grant, just ran a fly route down the right side and Fiedler caught him in stride. And he took the game-winning touchdown, ran right into the end zone, right through the end zone, and right up to me and two or three of my friends who were standing right in the back of the end zone and just started going bananas with us at the back of the end zone. Like having a, throwing like a little party where it was just him and like the three or four of us were all invited to that party. And you just don't come back from a moment like that. Like from that moment on, I was a diehard college football fan. And I have been for every point uh, ever since then. And <clears throat> it's funny because I think Andre Grant is like a doctor in, I think at like Duke Medical Center or something now. And I always wonder, I'm like, if I'm ever down that way at some point, I just want to like duck into his office and be like, you probably don't remember me, but back when I was in eighth grade and you were a football player, you had like a celebration that made me fall in love with college football. So maybe someday I'll get the chance to do that. But uh, that was definitely the moment where I became a dyed-in-the-wool college football uh, fan. That's awesome. That's so cool. 
my story uh, goes, um, you know, I, I grew up in Boulder, a big University of Colorado fan, big CU Buffs. Um, you know, we, we could always, what was really cool back then is you could go into the stadium just all the time. The stadium was open. You had people running the, running the stairs, you know, to work out. And like me and my friends in, in grade school would go out and like play football in the end zone. So each letter of Colorado, it was, a, it was a turf field at that point. Each letter was a first down. So we would just, you know, the, and 10 yards wide, it was like four on four, three on three, whatever. It was, it's just fun. But to kind of hang around the, the stadium was really, really neat. And that was right around the, the time 90, 1991, where uh, Colorado won their uh, national championship. Um, split with Georgia Tech, but we're not going to go down that road right now. But, uh, the first ever game I went to as a fan, um, it was me and my dad and a- another one or two of our friends. And I, it was Iowa State that was, that was into play Colorado and watching this Iowa State Oklahoma State game for whatever reason kind of made, made me think of that. But, uh, so we, we go to the game and we were buying our tickets just at the box office. You know, we, yeah, you know, back then you could just walk up and buy tickets. It wasn't a wasn't a big deal. Um, so we walk up and we buy our tickets and we we go sit we sit down in our seats, and you know we're in the Iowa State section, like right next to the Iowa State band. And I remember just like being really annoyed that this band was playing at all the wrong times. Like Colorado did something great and they weren't playing. And when Iowa State got a first down, they played. And I was really upset about that. And I was, must have been like six. I was, I was young. I was like six or seven years old. And it wasn't until after the game, when we all walked out, that we all realized that we all were wearing red. Like, my dad's coat was red. I was wearing a red jacket. My buddy was wearing a red jacket. Like, so we walk up to the, the ticket office, and they assumed that we were Iowa State fans. And so we're sitting right next to the Iowa State band cheering for Colorado. I'm sure all of the Iowa State like fans around us were like, what the hell are you guys doing? Um, but I, I, that memory is just very, very stark for me. And that, that was the, the first game I ever went to. So that was, that was really funny. Back in those days, I doubt you were the only Iowa State fans cheering for Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we, we actually heard from a bunch of you, um, on, on Twitter last weekend, uh, your first, um, college football memories. And we would love to, you know, keep, keep hearing that. So, uh, if you want to shoot us an email, westlawpirates at gmail.com, uh, tweet at us, uh, at westlawpirates, uh, tweet us your, your kind of first college football memory or, or something that, you know, really struck out at you. And now that everyone has 280 characters on Twitter, you can, you know, put more into a single tweet. We got to give shouts out to um, Jim uh, Bendit, who uh, I thought his was the most impressive response we got. So the first game he ever went to as a kid was 1955 Notre Dame versus USC, and his first NU game was in 1966 versus Indiana. So that's that's pretty awesome. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, shout outs to him. Um, you know, we heard a lot of. Uh, our, our our friend Kat, who we met uh, earlier in the season, you know, she was saying that uh, she w- was 
probably at games in September of 89 when she was born in August of 89. So, uh, she'd been going to Northwestern games forever. And I remember John, when she came in and found us at the tailgate earlier this season, she showed us a picture of her as a little girl at the Rose Bowl. Uh, so that was, yeah, that was, that was really cool. She's got us all beat. Yeah. Uh, a lot but, of people heard a lot of people whose uh, whose first memory was the fifty four fifty one game against Michigan in two thousand. Yeah, that was that was big. Not my first memory, but certainly one of my biggest. I was on the field. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, keep sending those in. You know, we'd love we'd love to hear kind of everyone else's stories. Um, that that's just really really neat. Uh, so like I say, email us, tweet at us, uh, you know, share those first college football memories, be it. At a Northwestern game or, or anywhere else, you know, because you know none, none of our first uh, f- football memories were, was from Northwestern. So, uh, and here we are hosting a Northwestern podcast uh, all those years later. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap it up for this week. Uh, head to our website, westlotpirates.com, to leave comments and questions. You can find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter at Westlot Pirates. Email the show, like I said, westlotpirates at gmail.com. And you can give us a call on our voicemail line, 847-231-2287. That's 847-231-CATS. Uh, Khawk, I hope to be hearing from you next weekend. Um, and stay tuned next week as we come back and give our visceral and statistical views on Northwestern Athletics. And look for us in the west lot of Ryan Field flying the red pirate flag because we give no quarter, especially the fourth. For John Lacombe and Eric Skazbo, I'm Sam Walter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.